can you imagine, by the way, if there was breathalyzer on scooters, like around South by Southwest, there'd be a lot of empty scooters sitting around. I don't think anyone would be able to use them. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek with TechCrunch. Alex. I'm Alex Troy, <laughs> um, the founder of the Human Driving Association. Interesting. I'm Ed Niedermeyer, the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And today we are going to be speaking with Dmitry Shevalenko of Tortoise. Um, and uh, if we really wanted to be uh, clickbaity about it, we would say this is the self-driving scooter episode. Because <laughs> what's, but but really, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, and I'm really excited that Dimitri's here to be able to walk us through uh, this really fascinating and and actually quite focused and and not just like buzz bomb kind of kind of a space. So, uh, Dimitri, thanks for for your time and uh, welcome to the Tonicast. It's a pleasure to be on with you. So, Dimitri, would you like to tell us what you thought about the cruise reveal? Um, that just happened in the last few days. Well, I mean, I I think the uh, to me it was a it was a non-event um, in that I, I still think we haven't asked the hard question of of what problem are self-driving cars solving, uh, and I don't think there's a, is a great answer, right? If it's about rideshare, uh, rideshare already exists, and it's unclear that uh, I haven't seen the math that shows how in the first few years self-driving cars are going to be any cheaper than rideshares today with all the extra data costs and, and hardware costs. So I think it's, you know, uh, you know, it seems like they put a lot of work into it, but, uh, and they got a lot of coverage, which is probably their goal. But, uh, and I, I hope this isn't, I'm not, my, my goal isn't to uh, bad mouth cruise, but I think I just, mm-hmm. I'm just generally a skeptic when it comes to, uh, you know, what, what problem the self-driving car companies are, are solving. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I think that's, that to me is a more interesting question rather than the vehicle form factor. Well, were I here representing a, a very amazing company in the sector, we could have that conversation, but, um, what problem are you trying to solve? Well, so I, I think, um, the problem that got me, uh, fascinated with, with the opportunity in low speed automation, uh, is just looking at micro mobility more broadly. Um, it's an incredible solution for a huge volume of trips that people take. So something like 60% of private car trips are under two miles, 50% of Uber and Lyft trips are under two miles. And with, with micro mobility and light electric batteries that now cost under a hundred dollars, we found vehicle form factors that that are really good for those short trips. Uh, But there's three really big challenges that are holding back shared micromobility from realizing its full potential. First is sidewalk clutter and obstruction. So, you know, cities are excited about the mode shift, but they're very concerned with the the clutter, the resident complaints about scooters parked in every wrong place. Um, And so how do you enable the super fast door-to-door travel time that dockless micromobility unlocks while minimizing and mitigating these negative externalities. The second challenge with dockless shared micromobility is rider predictability. So nine times out of 10, you need to go on a wild goose chase to find a scooter or an e-bike when you actually need a ride. And for most trips, you actually need to have confidence that that a vehicle is going to be there when you need it. Uh, And so if we really want to be displacing car trips with a more uh, appropriate size form factor for short trips, 
we, we need that rider predictability and availability. And so how do you solve that problem? And then the, the third big challenge is sustainability. Uh, we're all familiar with the headlines about the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars these scooter operators are losing. And the, the math of their business is they're not getting enough rentals per day per scooter. So scooters are sitting empty 80 to 90% of the hours they could be rented. And they're paying upwards of $10 a day just on the labor costs for recharging the vehicles. So paying people to drive around in gas guzzling vans and trucks uh, to either pick up or swap the batteries. And so the, the problem we're solving at Tortoise is, is really all three of those. Uh, if you can have a remote teleoperator drive a scooter, they can repark it immediately after a rider completes their trip and repark it in a safe uh, parking zone where it's not in anybody's way. You can have the magical experience of on-demand micromobility where a rider can just press a button on their phone and have a scooter drive itself to their location as opposed to going on a wild goose chase. And we can finally get a really sustainable, lucrative business model for operators where they're able to potentially double, triple the revenue per day per scooter while 2x reducing their single biggest daily operating cost. Hang on one second. So Tortoise makes a scooter that's self-balancing. It's capable of teleop. So we we run the software and service, yeah. So we we uh, the the our our folk, you know think of us as Android crossed with AWS. So we're not a hardware company. We work with the scooter manufacturers. We provide them reference design. So for their vehicles, they can incorporate the hundred dollars and extra components you need so that vehicle can be remotely teleoperated and eventually even do parts of a trip autonomously. Um, and so if you look at three wheel scooters or two-wheel scooter with, with training wheels that are retractable, uh, you don't necessarily need uh, a fundamentally different form factor. Um, you just need a lot of software, some cameras, an extra motor for remote steering, um, and uh, you know a, a sensor for somebody jumps right in front of it. Um, but that was kind of our, our key insight. My co-founder is building an autonomous lawnmower, and he realized... That John only Deere? Take... <laughs> like, like John Deere does yeah, that. Yeah, 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 exactly. So um, I, he realized that because of the smartphone piece dividend, the uh, the cameras and components inside our smartphones have all gotten 10 times more powerful while getting 10 times cheaper over the last five to 10 years. Uh, you can repurpose a lot of those same components, put them on the outside of an of electric lawnmower, and now it can drive itself at low speeds uh, assuming it weighs less than 150 pounds and there's no rider on it. Um, and so one way, one way to think about it is we're not that different than the sidewalk delivery robots. Um, we're, we're applying a lot of the same principles, a lot of the same components. Um, we just think it's the use case is a lot more compelling because we're not just reducing the cost of delivery. We're increasing the utilization of these shared fleets uh, and we're solving this clutter and obstruction problem. What is... Um... So if a company uh, like Lime, let's say, or Bird used um, partner with you and, and use your software as, essentially as a service, right? Um, yep. And then they also use the reference design. How much does that add to the, like, their added costs? So, so to give you a sense, so we don't charge for the reference design itself. So think of us again like Android in that regard, where we want as many scooter manufacturers and scooter ODMs building Tortoise-compatible scooters. So we, uh, we, we just provide that reference design at no cost to any manufacturer that wants to integrate the extra hardware components. The extra hardware components at a scale of, say, production run of 10,000 scooters 
uh, costs around $100 extra per, per vehicle. Um, and then we charge uh, in the neighborhood of $50 a month per vehicle for unlimited repositioning. And that's including the costs of our teleoperators, insurance, and the data streaming costs. What's the return on investment then for you know wh- whatever company uses your service? Because the ultimate goal would be that it would help them, you know, the in- help their unit economics. Because, uh, well, for one, their their scooters aren't getting trashed, so there's that. I- and I'm sure that you've calculated that. But um, they're all obviously paying for your services too. That that fifty dollars per scooter, you said. Yep. Um, uh, so, per month. So, yeah. How does that pan out for them in the end? I mean, what's how do you what's your argument to them that that that's worth that? Oh. Do you have yeah. a number that you've calculated? Yeah. So, um, so, so the key X factor is how many more trips per day you can get when you're dynamically repositioning your, your fleet. MIT did a study that found that you can get 10 times more utilization on a shared scooter fleet. Um, and you know, the analogy I like to use is imagine if you had a taxi service where your taxi driver can only wait at the location of their last drop-off for their next pickup. And that's effectively shared micromobility today. Um, so there, there's a lot of room for improvement on the utilization side, but you don't need to even believe in, in 10x. You're just assuming a 25% increase in utilization, so say $5 more in revenue per day, and then you're saving $5 a day on the labor cost for recharging. Um, you've made back the, the $100 in hardware on, on day 10, um, and then by day 20, you, you've more than paid back uh, our, our $50 a month fee as well. Um, so, you know, we, we, we see the payback period is on the hardware as being less than two weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, y- you don't need to assume scooter longevity of, of more than a few months uh, for this to be a no brainer for an operator. So so if I'm hearing this right, the um, efficiencies on the cost side are roughly in the same ballpark as the um, the additional revenue from higher utilization rates. So in other words, you're, you're helping about equal amounts on the, on the revenue side as on the cost side. I, I think that's the conservative assumption on the revenue side. I think, you know, potentially could be, like I said, you know, MIT thinks it could be a 10 X uh, increase on, on revenue per day. Um, I think that's, that's probably extreme, but, but it potentially easily could double revenue per day. Um, and I think over the long term, that that's where the real, value is because batteries will get cheaper and, and have increased lifetime. Uh, and so the, the, the cost of recharging, you know, five years from now, even without tortoise should be uh, a lot more, you know, a lot more reasonable, but the need to maximize utilization on a depreciating asset that's evergreen. And so that, that's where we see uh, the, the real long-term value. And, you know, frankly, this also might just become a requirement because cities, uh, are you know their number one complaint they get about shared scooters is the clutter and obstruction on the sidewalk, and they can either force the operators to go back to a world of docks, which really kills the rider experience, or you can have this hybrid model where a rider can still leave a scooter wherever they need to go, and then the scooter drives itself back to a, the nearest dock, or ideally it just drives itself to its next requested trip, and that's where you're really getting that that full utilization model very similar to, to Uber and Lyft's rideshare model, where your driver, he or she is most likely dispatched for their next trip before your, before your trip is even complete. And that's, that's where we want to get to, to shared scooters as soon as possible. 
So I imagine you've been testing the autonomous uh, piece of this um, in cities somewhere. Has that happened yet? Yeah. So key thing is in 2020, we're focused not on autonomy at all, but on the remote teleoperator control. So we have a teleoperation center in Mexico City. Um, And so for for any deployment we're doing this year, it's going to be 100% teleoperated. We have, you know, when we first conceived of the company, uh, we got to the the ability to do 20% of a repositioning trip autonomously. Um, and we wanted to prove to ourselves that it was possible with just $100 in extra hardware. But to, to actually bring this to market, uh, the teleoperations and having you know, five nines reliability on that uh, is a lot more important than, than making incremental progress on the autonomy. How's that, how's that five nines working out for you? Um, so one of the ways we... So, so the main event we tried to uh, never have happen is losing connectivity with the vehicle, right? So, so our, our main infrastructure dependence is on 4G networks. Um, and so our robust way to get to, f- to five nines is routing. So we, we pre-map uh, any deployment area we're about to go into. And effectively, if there's dead zones in a city, we will route around them. Um, and, uh, and so that's our way of, of kind of backing into five nines. Um, but, uh, but the constraint always is, you know, you, you can, it's easier to get to five nines if you keep adding more and more hardware. Um, but if, if you add more than that hundred dollars, it starts breaking, uh, the, the no brainer business model for the operators and manufacturers. Um, so routing ends up being the more robust way to uh, to ensure that that we always have connectivity with with our scooters while we're moving them. I just wanted to drill a little bit into the the teleop, like the technology part of that. Um, so it sounds like you're not using sort of the um, the technology that others use that sort of bonds like different uh, uh, providers um, together, so that you kind of because it, it sounds like you can you can just avoid certain areas. Like this doesn't need to be a like level five, quote unquote, like teleoperation type of thing. Um, so like, is that, does that make the technologically fundamentally more simple than someone like maybe what Phantom Auto is doing and, and sort of just like what, what goes into the, the, the tech of the, of the teleoperation side? Yeah, I mean, it's, we're, we're really repurposing a lot of what is on a scooter already in terms of the IoT module. So they already have data cards um, we're, we're adding our own, you know, processor that that's more powerful than, than what's typically on a scooter. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're, you know, Phantom Auto, uh, I'd say is, is the closest thing to a competitor and that they're also trying to be this horizontal provider of, of teleoperations, but because they started in the self-driving car space where you, d- you don't have the, the luxury of, of a max speed of five miles per hour, you need a lot more redundancy um, you know, we're, we're fine with 80 milliseconds of latency, but if you're going 60 miles per hour during 80 milliseconds of latency, you're going nine, you know, nine feet and a lot can go wrong in nine feet. Whereas if you're going at a max speed of five miles per hour, uh, we're, we're fine with, with the latency on the video feed. Um, and you know, again, the quality of our video feed, you know, a lot of our technologies on compressing it. Uh, and and exposing to the teleoperator just what they need to see to safely navigate the vehicle and not much else than that. And so the, the teleoperator interface is simple enough that you could actually do it from your smartphone. Uh, you don't need an elaborate rig uh, to take control of one of our scooters. 
and you know at scale we we see this as something that anybody anywhere in the world who's gone through training can make extra money helping drive a scooter across the street um it doesn't require anything more than than a desktop uh, a smartphone or a, a with a good internet connection and and just on the um installing an actuator like the steering part of it is interesting so i assume you you have to install an actuator into the post like describe that aspect of the of the reference design yeah, so so basically, we we add a motor uh, to the base of the steering column, uh, which allows that that motor basically turns it uh, left and right in the same way that that a rider would uh, turn the handlebars, and so the same degree of of, uh, of movement that a rider can uh, put on the on the handlebars, that motor uh, is, tr- is is turning that that steering column. And and in terms of the latency that you mentioned as well. Um, like is that has that um have you have you done sort of a like a functional safety case around that to sort of explain have there been concerns maybe from either operators or from cities uh about the potential of you know the nightmare scenario of some low paid person and somewhere else far from this city not a stakeholder uh potentially you know either through negligence or 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 just a you know lack of 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 that real time you know, response, uh, you know, crashing a scooter into someone or whatever. How do you address those kinds of, those kinds of concerns? Have you done a safety case or, or are you taking a different approach to that? So, I mean, s- safety is our number one operating priority as it should be for, for any company in the transportation space. And so we're very rigorous about selecting our teleoperators. Um, they, they basically complete, you know, many days of, of simulated, uh, test drives, uh, before they they're they're on the real world and their first uh, two weeks of doing real world trips, there's somebody constantly sitting behind their shoulder monitoring them, um, and so we, we've put a lot of thought into uh, that that training regimen for for our teleoperators. Um, you know, while labor costs are, are lower in Mexico City, we're not paying the absolute lowest cost because we want we want to incentivize our teleoperators that this is a job you want to keep. Uh, not a job you want to lose, um, and so um, so yeah, we're we're we and like I said, I, I'd say on the infrastructure side, we we put a lot of effort into the the pre mapping of any deployment area to ensure that we we never uh, enter uh, a low latency uh, situation. Um, and and the other thing we're doing is we're actually constantly collecting signal strength data, even when riders are on the scooter. Right, so we we have access to the IoT, and so if a rider goes somewhere, uh, and we realize that that's a place that that you know we wouldn't have the sufficient uh, connectivity that we need for a reliable video feed, that updates our routing algorithms, and that basically becomes an area we would never route into as well. Uh, Phantom Auto has this, uh, I think they call it bonding, where they uh, transmit and receive over multiple networks simultaneously. Is is that how does it do you do something like that? So we pick the best provider for a given city. Um, and you know, again, if that provider happens to have dead zones, we route around them. I, I think the reason they needed to start with bonding uh, just has to do again with with the max speed that they were working around, right? So ev- everything becomes much simpler uh, if, if you're constrained to only going five miles per hour. Uh, if, if you're going at the speeds that, you know, a self-driving car is going, teleoperations, you know, the way we think of it is for past five miles per hour, 
extra mile per hour of speed uh, adds ten times more difficulty, um, and so we're you know we're we're not looking to the the one constraint we put on ourselves with the name tortoise is we're never going to be moving something at at a high speed, um, and so we we have the luxury of of not having to worry about some of the uh, the challenges that Phantom Auto had to solve uh, from day one. And uh, are your teleop operators these are full time employees? Yes. And, uh, you know, and I'm, that's, I'd say like three years from now, it might be more like a gig model where we want to tap on, into a global labor workforce. Uh, but I'd say uh, over, over the first 12 to 18 months of, of our deployments, uh, it will absolutely only be full-time employees. Um, but I think at, at some point, um, you know, our own employees might decide they'd rather work from home because there's no real benefit to, spending an hour and a half in Mexico city traffic, uh, to, to get to our teleoperations center. Um, so, uh, so I, I think we're, I think it's very important. That's how we start, but we're not, you know, I'm not committing the company to, uh, indefinitely, uh, having that model. How do you see that playing out though at scale or even uh, initially you mentioned that there's a teleop center in, in Mexico city, but, you know, let, let's take three totally different cities like uh, Boston, a Phoenix, and um, a San Francisco or a Mexico City. Um, do you see small, um, you know, scooter companies employing their own people? Do you see, or is it, um, are you providing the service, or is this going to be like a giga economy type of worker who, like you said, if, as long as they have a desktop and, and a couple of other simple tools, they can make money in that city where there's um, a deployment? How, how is it going to work? Yeah. So so for everything in 2020, all teleoperators are going to be full-time employees of Tortoise. And in order to provide insurance and, and liability and indemnification for the vehicle while it's being repositioned, we need to control all parts of the stack, right? So it needs to be our routing algorithm, our teleoperation software, our training and certification of the teleoperators in order to be able be able to even take out an insurance policy. Um, we we do see, and so you know, think of it like a call center uh, where whenever a scooter needs movement, the next available teleoperator in our call center uh, will be driving it, and that teleoperator can be do doing a scooter in Boston, and then be doing one in San Francisco, and then one in Seattle after that. And one of our key internal metrics is teleoperator utilization. So in a given hour that a teleoperator is online, what percentage of the time are they actively driving a scooter? And it's actually very similar to how the rideshare companies think about driver utilization, where that ends up being one of their core metrics. In a given hour that a driver is online, what percentage of the time are they on a trip or, or driving to a revenue-generating trip? Uh, and the nice advantage we have is, is one teleoperator can have global reach uh, as opposed to in, in rideshare driver can only do trips uh, in a certain city. Now, one of the conversations we're having with, uh, with, with some cities uh, is actually empowering uh, local uh, disabled communities to become the teleoperators uh, for, for their city. Uh, so if you think about who's the most disadvantaged today, when you have a scooter obstructing the middle of the sidewalk, it's, you know, you could probably imagine somebody in a wheelchair uh, that has to go a different way, and uh, and we're really excited about pulling a full 180, where not only 
will scooters now be never in the middle of the sidewalk? We're actually empowering folks who, uh, who can't necessarily work from outside the home to have a new earning stream. Um, how, how does that, can you just explain how that, how that would work? This is like, the coolest part of this whole shtick. Yeah, this is really interesting. <laughs> like, like, so, so if, you're, if you're someone in a wheelchair, you're going down the street, like, are you pre-registered as, as someone who has the authority to move these things or just oh, explain no, no, no. That. So you wouldn't, I, I'm, it, it's not the same two scenarios at once. So it's just, again, so in, in general, people, if you're in a wheelchair, you should just never be encountering a situation where a scooter is blocking your way, right? And so if, if cities allow automated repositioning, uh, operators can ensure that in real time after a rider completes their trip, that scooter will always be reparked in an area where it's not obstructing anybody's way. Now, in parallel to that, uh, one, you know, one of the ways you, you make that real is you can have teleoperators who live in that very same city you know, be people from the disabled community who, you know, are, are you know, potentially the folks that, that are looking for earning opportunities uh, that you can do right from your home computer uh, and not have to go into an office, um, you know, which, which might be a pretty, you know, a big barrier for them. Um, so it's not, it's not that you would, uh, you know, see a scooter uh, and be able to drive it uh, uh, because it's blocking your way. We want to you know, make a world possible where that just doesn't happen because every scooter is immediately reparked in a safe parking zone after a rider completes their trip. Got it. That's really interesting. And have you been talking with the uh, uh, community at large, like in particular cities or advocacy groups, or how do you plan on tapping that workforce? I mean, I know that um, Alex, Ed, and myself have um, at one event a couple of years ago sort of encountered um, a gentleman who. Uh, was a paraplegic and, and really did talk about um, mobility, obviously being a huge issue, but also, um, you know, later offline, kind of talking about uh, the difficulty of of work um, and how tech can open up like opportunities, especially working remotely from home. So, when do you see launching or trialing something like this? You know, are you in talks with people? Yeah, so so I'd say the um, you know for the first half of this year, all our deployments will will rely on the teleoperators in Mexico City, and I think we want to get that working robustly before we open up remote teleoperation centers uh, where you don't necessarily have uh, you know real time oversight and, and somebody that you can speak to if if you have an issue. Um, so so I think it's uh, it's probably a later 2020 initiative on our part. Uh, but it's very much part of the conversation now where we're actively engaged with the advocacy groups uh, is ensuring that when we're coming up with our rules of the road and our routing algorithms, that we don't contribute to the problem, right? So when we have a scooter crossing a street uh, and say there's also a, a person in a wheelchair crossing that street, how do we make sure that we don't make that crossing any more difficult than it needs to be for the person in the wheelchair? Um, and so our, our current focus with, with those communities is sharing with them on, on how we plan on uh, implementing teleoperations on the sidewalk on the road uh, and what the rules and procedures will be so that we don't make things any worse. Uh, and then we focus on making them a lot better. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. 
Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. Can you, can you describe um, sort of what the uh, teleoperation user interface is like for the teleoperator? And then maybe to build on that, um, sort of describe like what kind of certification um, folks have to go through to, to become a teleoperator for Tortoise. Yeah, so, um, so so the input is is very basic. So you basically see uh, have a, have a video feed uh, of the front facing and rear facing camera on on the scooter, um, and you basically have three inputs. Uh, you can turn the the steering left, turn the steering right, and then you have ten degrees of forward thrust. Then you can provide the scooter and also stop it. Um, and so you know it's. We, we, we provide our teleoperators with a joystick, but you could easily do it just using keyboard controls, uh, left, right, forward, and, and stop. Um, and what the teleoperator sees on their screen uh, overlaid on, on, on the video feed is the route that they will be following. So we generate the, the route algorithmically to be compliant with whatever the city guidelines are on what type of sidewalks, bike lanes, road shoulders we're allowed to go. And the, the teleoperator follows that route. Um, another thing that we're uh, allowing teleoperators to do is the first uh, integrated Tortoise-compatible scooter. Uh, Acton is going to be the manufacturer. Uh, it actually has a speaker on the scooter. And so the teleoperator will have 20 different voice commands that they'll be able to... So say somebody jumps on the scooter uh, while it's being repositioned, the, the scooter will then be like, hey, you know, can I help you? Please, please get off so I can complete my trip. Or say somebody is you know, intentionally blocking its way, you, you'll just have these pre-recorded messages which the teleoperator can deploy uh, for some of the more sensitive uh, uh, human scooter interactions. Uh, when I was p- looking up your company, it said here, ex-Uber exec launches startup, yada, yada. Is that you? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I led Uber's expansion into... Multimodal transportation, including the Jump Deal, Uber Transit, Uber Car Rentals, and that's how I got really excited about the the opportunity micro mobility, but also got wise to to these three big problems. Um, how I, the the speaker system is is an interesting one and could help protect a lot of things. But here's one thing that unfortunately doesn't seem like there's nothing you can do to protect it, and that's drunk people. Drunk people on scooters, drunk people messing with scooters, drunk people messing with, and, and you know, how do you protect against that? And have you been testing it, or um, or do you uh, recommend? I guess what some companies are doing, um, or some cities are, which is like pulling some of these scooters off the streets after a certain hour. Well, so actually, we we can really help that that challenge because we can move the scooters away from the bars. Right, so so I think it, it you know if you're an operator and you now can uh, when it, when it starts getting nighttime you can move scooters away from the areas where they're most likely to be vandalized 
or where somebody is most likely to, to ride them and do something dangerous on them, you don't have to wait for your field team to get to the scooter. You can in real time reposition it. Um, and so, you know, we, we certainly uh, would encourage operators to, to use our platform to ensure that you don't have scooters uh, outside a bar when it's last call. Um, now we're, I don't, I don't think we're, we're going all the way of, of putting a breathalyzer, uh, on our scooters as part of the reference design, you should, but, but I think, you yeah, well, I mean, but that's something that, you know, it's not core to our offering. It's something the, the operators can, can do in parallel. Um, but, uh, but, but I think, you know, ensuring that, uh, you, you don't have scooters easily available, uh, where, where people are most likely to, to do stupid things with them. Uh, that's a pretty robust way to to, to capture the eighty twenty of, of of that challenge. Can you imagine, by the way, if there was breathalyzer on scooters like around South by Southwest, there would be a lot of empty scooters sitting around. I don't think anyone would be able to use them. It would not help utilization. Yeah, no, no, but, you, but utilization is you know there's there's plenty of utilization that happens during daytime. I mean, I I, I think it's um, long term. You know, if, if we can assure the public that this is a safer mode of transportation. Whatever loss utilization you get at, at night, uh, you make up for it in terms of more daytime trips. Uh, I think three-wheel scooters will actually help a lot there too. I've seen survey data that shows that there's twice as many people willing to get on a, on a three-wheel form factor versus two-wheel just because they, they perceive it to be more stable and, and less likely to fall over when they're riding it. And that and that three wheel form factor makes it easier for you, I assume, because then you don't have to worry about balancing. Yeah, we don't uh, need the retractable training wheels for the three wheelers because it, it auto balances. Right. So, so the and those those training wheels is that part of your hundred dollar cost, or is yeah. that sort of okay? And, it's, and then, it's it's super. That's I mean that's completely immaterial. It's basically two not right. smart wheels, uh, and yeah, it's it's like eight dollars of the cost. How do they hold up though? Because you know, anytime you add anything, as you know, you know, because you've you've had to create the reference design, um, especially something that retracts, you know, it can wear down. Or I mean, how how have these held up in your testing? Well, the, the core mechanic is no different than the kickstand, right? Like mm-hmm. the kickstand goes up and down, and so basically, instead of uh, just think of it like a, a two sided kickstand with with a wheel on the bottom of it. Okay. Uh, then in terms of you know the the when we're actually moving the vehicle again the the name tortoise reflects the max speed of five miles per hour um the, there's a lot less pressure on it at, at that low speed versus uh the speeds that riders are are going on the vehicle when when the those wheels are up uh you mentioned earlier that um you know phantom auto is maybe the closest in terms of a competitor as far as being like sort of horizontally integrated as far as their approach. Do you think that um, with, it seems like the few teleoperation companies out there have pivoted away from autonomous vehicles and are more uh, focused on uh, like delivery bots and things like that. Do you see other companies jumping in on what you're doing or trying at least to, to handle a piece of that? Or do you think that that's just, it's, there's not enough players as it is um i'm just curious what you think about the like the industry movement overall yeah so so in terms of in in the micro autonomy space so so using automation for micro mobility the the competitors are mostly trying to go full stack 
So somebody is trying to be both an operator, building their own vehicle, and then running their own custom autonomy slash teleop solution. Um, and so you have folks like Rolo in Pasadena. Uh, you have Wheel with no H in uh, in Seattle. Um, you know, and you have you know Ninebot with their T60. Uh, they're not going full full stack, but but they're doing hardware and and their own uh, autonomy service. Um, I, I think the you know where we're unique is because of the co-founders' past experience and and just knowing a lot of the operators around the world. You know, we had the, the the relationships and experience on day one to be able to sell into operators, uh, which is is pretty daunting for uh, a lot of other folks. And and so people are going full stack because they want to be able to get their solution to market with with fewer dependencies. Um, and so um, so yeah, I mean, I'd say it really only is Phantom Auto, uh, and they haven't gone after the the micro mobility space. They're they're only in delivery robots. Uh, but eventually, we also want to be powering routing, autonomy, teleops, and insurance for delivery robots, security robots, cleaning robots, construction robots. Uh, if it needs to get from A to B and you don't need it going faster than five miles per hour, it's always going to need the same four things. Routing, autonomy software to handle the easy parts of the trip, teleoperators to handle everything else. And one throat to choke that that can insure the vehicle and indemnify both the city and and the service provider. Would that include e-bikes? Yes, and I mean the training wheel design. You know, we're already working on retrofitting several e-bikes. Um, so yeah, they all have the the same core uh, set of challenges shared scooters do, which is clutter and obstruction, uh, lack of rider reliability, and and lack of a sustainable business model. Um. Well, I want to I want to get to the autonomy piece of this because we've been really focused on the teleop, which obviously makes sense because that's where you are right now. But but before we get into the autonomy piece of it, um, I'm just curious, like, what, how do you talk to your um, potential partners about sort of the ratio of operators per vehicle and sort of like what they would need to budget for or plan for depending on and and obviously all their needs are going to be a little different, I guess. But like like how how generally. Um, are people thinking about that sort of sort of how many operators do you need to efficiently manage a fleet of you know a thousand or so so for for our first deployment we're, we're you know it's going to be 150 vehicles and we're going to have 10 teleoperators um, which is probably more than we need and so it's really it's on uh, it's not on our customers right our customers all they do is they tell us which vehicle and where they want it moved um, where where kind of the rubber meets the road is just like with a, a phone call center, um, you know, you might have to wait, you know, three to five minutes uh, before, you know, between, you know, submitting a request and that repositioning beginning. Um, you know, for it's important for us in our initial deployments to, to have that uh, wait time be uh, as, as, as small as possible. And so we're probably overstaffing uh, teleoperations. But I think it's a great segue to... <clears throat> The, uh, the the autonomy piece because you know one, once that becomes part of the offering our key internal metric uh, you know in addition to the the reliability on the teleoperations is on a given A to B trip what is the percentage of time we're using the autonomy software and what is the percentage of time that a teleoperator is is controlling the scooter um, and and our model there is unless the on vehicle software has full confidence that it knows exactly what is in front of it the next 10 feet 
and there's nothing there that shouldn't be there, it will fall back to teleoperator control. And it's basically making that assessment uh, every every second. Um, and uh, you know, again, we, we have the luxury of moving at a low speed, so it doesn't need to make that assessment uh, more frequently than that. Um, and so we, we need to always be able to, to, again, identify, we know what pavement we're on. Um, and that's just using cameras um, on, on the scooter um, and uh, a lot of filtering and, and image processing techniques, uh, all constrained by you know, a processor that doesn't cost more than $40. So a Raspberry Pi grade processor. Um, and, and that's kind of where we're, uh, we're coming up with a lot of creative software solutions uh, to, uh, uh, to, to figure out the, the path execution on the autonomy and the, the object detection to uh, be confident that there's nothing there that shouldn't be there. Are you, um, I, I know that TechCrunch, um, uh, that Megan Rose Dickey wrote about Tortoise uh, uh, last year. And at the time in the article, um, she mentioned that you're working with a number of, of operators. And it seemed like Wind was one that was pretty supportive. Is, is, are you can, still working with them or have you? Yeah, we're, we're actively uh, retrofitting their custom scooter uh, for deployment, uh, that's going to go live soon, hopefully. Um, and yeah, we've, I mean, the, you know, for, for operator, the, the bottleneck for us is not operators. It's actually city approvals. Um, because for, for operators, there's very few things that in one fell swoop will both potentially double your revenue per day per scooter, uh, reduce your single biggest daily operating cost, which is the, uh, the labor costs of recharging and, make cities really happy with a solution for, for clutter and obstruction. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to kind of get, get ahead of ourselves and we have some announcements coming out uh, next month, but we, we have now the world's not, not just kind of nimble uh, operators like wind, uh, but some of the world's biggest operators as well uh, will we'll be using Tortoise in 2020. And and what is like, what do you hear from cities? Like if, if that's the bottleneck, like, well, you know, because you know, you do a lot of say, like in Portland, right? Like rebalancing is a really important priority. Serving all the neighborhoods is a really important priority. You hear that a lot from cities. It seems like this is a way to sort of allow them to to continue to mandate that stuff without really, um, you know, putting a, a huge headwind on the profitability or the potential profitability you know, economics of of these operators. Um, so it seems like, it, you know, to some extent there, there would be some real interest from the cities. Of course, then new technology is scary. So, so what, oh, absolutely. You know, what, what's the reaction from cities been to this? Um, what are they like? What are they worried about? So the, uh, the, the cities that have a top down mandate to be innovative, uh, and that already have some form of shared micromobility, they get it and, and they want it. So, you know, after suburban Atlanta, you should expect to see these in San Jose, uh, in Washington D.C. Um, and uh, so, so not just kind of smaller suburbs, but but some of the biggest cities in the world. Um, I, I would say cities that um, have kind of been shell shocked by scooters to begin with, even though this and and don't necessarily have a culture of of innovation or a top down mandate to be innovative. Uh, the the combination of being shell shocked uh, and now hearing about this you know, autonomy thing, even though we're not autonomous, but that's, you know, that's kind of the, the, the buzzword we get uh, associated with. Um, it's just a little too much. And so, you know, practically, we can't 
you know, we, we are talking, you know, we're still a young company and there's only so many deployments we can do in 2020. Uh, and there's enough uh, cities in the world. Also, this isn't just a North America thing. You know, city of Helsinki in Finland is, is very leaned in uh, for, for deployment in the first half of this year. Um, and, and, you know, everything I, I talked about shared micromobility is, is equally true in Europe as it is in the U.S. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, we're, we're you know, it, it's the bottleneck, uh, but we're, we're actually making a lot of progress. Um, it's just when I think about our, our TAM, uh, our total addressable market, it's ultimately going to be constrained by what, what are the cities that, that allow this technology to be deployed on the streets uh, and do they allow the entire fleet to, to be operated this way? So one of, one of the things that like Waymo has had to do in, in Chandler, Arizona, and I think you know every AV company is realizing that they have to do to some extent is have sort of an ability for autonomous or, or I guess even remotely teleoperated vehicles to interface with like law enforcement and officials, government officials, essentially. Um, mostly law enforcement. Obviously, you know, it's a little different with cars than, than maybe with scooters. But um, is that something that cities talk to you about? Like they want the ability to be able to step in and if for whatever reason the operator isn't doing something that they want to be able to have sort of a, a backdoor or like a key in so that they can be the ones who who in an emergency or, or of some kind can can actually move this? Or is that is that just not an issue? It, it hasn't come up. I mean, where where that thread has come up is more about the, the video feeds themselves. Um, so we don't store the video feeds for more than 24 hours after uh, a repositioning has been completed. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and we want it for that 24-hour period just in case there's an incident so that, you know, we, we can kind of share the record. Uh, but you know, we we we're not a surveillance company, uh, and uh, and you know, cities have just wanted to uh, be reassured that you know th- this data for the most part will will never be uh, used outside of the the real time repositioning need. But if there is, let's say, um, you know, someone's uh, it's either um, operating autonomously or teleoping in the in the video, is that running only when those two um, activities are occurring or will video be captured during a ride as well? Video will not be captured during a ride. Let's just say that there like is, a, I don't know, a crime or something that happens with the scooter. Um, so will you share it though with, um, law enforcement if, if needed? If we're subpoenaed, I mean, if we're subpoenaed, you know, we're going to comply with subpoenas, but we're not looking to proactively share any of the, of the data that we're collecting. Um, but if we're subpoenaed, we'll, you know, comply with any lawful subpoena. Um, this is an issue though, that kind of comes up a bit with a lot of companies, I think not specifically this, but if you're subpoenaed, but you're also getting rid of video within 24 hours, I mean, usually subpoenas don't like occur that quickly. I mean, maybe they do. Um, have you, do these types of things come up when you talk with cities or law enforcement? I, I mean, the, the reality is our cameras are, are facing down. And so we're not really, we're not collecting anything that's going to be that useful to, to solving a crime. Right. Um, and the, again, the only reason we're storing it even for that 24 hour period is just more for our own insurance purposes in case somebody falsely claims that they were hit by a scooter. You know, we, we want to ensure that there was, uh, um, you know, so, some record that that didn't happen. Uh, or if there's an incident, you know, just, just making sure it's transparent as to what actually did happen. Got it. Okay. 
could you just sort of talk about what your timeline for for or towards autonomy looks like? Like, sort of, what are you know what are the things that you're sort of focused on 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 that roadmap, and and sort of how do you see that playing out? Um, yeah, so so I think, like I mentioned at the outset, we we can already we have the capabilities to handle twenty percent of a suburban repositioning autonomously today, um, but we don't plan on deploying that capability until next year. Uh, and it kind of goes back to to the city approval bottleneck. Uh, if we were asking cities to deploy an autonomy solution plus a teleoperation solution, things would go a lot slower versus uh, you know asking for approval for a solution where there's always a directly accountable human that, that's trained and certified. Uh, and so I, I think to uh, to help get into as many markets as fast as possible. Uh, it's important to first prove that the teleoperations is 100% safe and reliable. And once we have that trust with cities, um, then, then I think we were in a position to, to start inquiring about autonomy. But I would not, you know, that doesn't mean that in the background, in terms of our software team, you know, we're constantly working on, on making the autonomy better and better, but it's not, not our number one priority right now. Uh, and so we're going to make progress on that front. But from a deployment point of view, uh, I wouldn't expect to see that uh, in in a city until uh, until yeah well into next year. And and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but but your reference hardware it includes a radar sensor of some kind. Is that right? Yeah. So that's for, yeah, because we basically you know we want to already have the uh, the, the extra uh, hardware be capable of autonomy, so we can just flip the switch overnight. And so we don't want to rely on the video feed. For a scenario where, say, somebody jumps right in front of the scooter, uh, we just want to be able to, to, to basically have a sonar uh, that can detect if, if there's an object that immediately entered uh, its, its space and then just immediately stop the scooter. So I know I know radar is getting cheap, but like, can you tell us a little bit about the, is this like an off-the-shelf component? Like, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, so, so this is the same chip that's now in every car, uh, the same Infineon chip that when you back up uh, and you're about to hit something when, when you're parking, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a chip that's under $10. Okay. And, and so is, is part of your sort of, um, roadmap towards more autonomous capability, does that include something like, um, a driver assistance system for the teleoperator? So for example, like if that, that ultrasonic sort of chip is, is, you know, does see an obstacle, it's going to have less latency than, you know everything. The video feed going through the t- to the teleoperator, it could react quicker. Like, w- could you like have or, or do you plan on on developing a sort of like automated emergency braking, for example, like that for the teleoperation use case, like as a as a sort of you know, as you move towards autonomy? It's not. I, I don't see that as necessarily being kind of the the key incremental step. Um, you know, we already feel that the teleoperator controls and interface uh, are, are powerful enough that, that that's a safe and, and reliable. Uh, set of tools. And and I don't think we need to, I think we want to be getting better and better on the routing um, and avoiding uh, the, the tricky scenarios in the, in the first place. And that's something that, you know, we're, it's, it's basically a big ML play where we're taking all of our historical trips and what happens on them. Uh, and then taking all of the, all of the sensor data in terms of what we're getting from the IOT, uh, both when it's in teleops mode and rider mode, and constantly generating better and better uh, routes for repositioning. Where is Tortoise deployed now? So we've we've done a soft launch in suburban Atlanta, Peachtree Corners, Georgia. 
It's going to be available for riders there next week. Um, and then uh, we're expecting to be live in San Jose by March. Is is there some potential by having the sensors on the vehicles? Um, is there potential for cost savings for the operator uh, in terms of um, insurance? Like because you, as you mentioned, right? Like one of the benefits of this is that you can you can potentially right contest a, a claim um, or something like that. Is is that something you've looked at or or that the operators talk to you about? It's uh, it's not something we're focused on. You know, I, I would say um, we're really trying to not at all be part of the rider experience right now. Um, so you know, it's it's on operators what what riders do with the scooter. It's on us uh, when when the rider ends their trip, making sure it's parked in the right place, uh, making sure it gets to its its uh, right recharging location or uh, rider pickup location. Um, and I'd say. Relative to the the impact we have in terms of uh, the the more revenue per day per scooter because you're getting more utilization and the cost savings on recharging, I don't think anything else will be as material to the operator's business. And so we're we're just focused on on those two value props uh, for the operators. Um, I think it would be relevant to close the way we open because I want to know if you know Alex is pursuing the long, the wrong type of job, but well. Should he pitch it all and, and go into, um, you know, shared micromobility? Is that, uh, in terms of your viewpoint, more of a game changer? Our, our basic thesis is low-speed automation happens before high-speed autonomy uh, because the components already exist and it, it can be done safer because, you know, ultimately safety is, is a function of uh, velocity times mass. Uh, and we're working with, you know, a, a hundred pound vehicle going five miles per hour. And that's just fundamentally easier set of problems than a two ton vehicle going 60 miles per hour. Um, so I think it's the easier problem to solve. Um, and then the second part of our thesis is of all of the verticals and low speed automation, delivery robots, security robots, you know, the list goes on and on. Shared micromobility is the most uh, promising one because you have this trifecta of value where you're increasing utilization, cutting the operating costs, and, and solving this urgent public nuisance of, of the uh, clutter and obstruction on the sidewalk. Um, I, I think there, you know, we we lose thirty thousand people a year to auto accidents, and I think that that's a tragedy uh, that that we can solve. Um, I think that the challenge there is the public tolerance for deaths or, or injury from autonomous vehicles is not 5,000. It's not 1,000. It's not even one. It's zero. Um, and, and so I think the, uh, the, the challenge for the self-driving car industry is, you know, there's this question of, you know, are, are you unlocking a new experience for riders that isn't possible with rideshare today? But there's also how, how do we get over this, this safety perception hurdle uh, where, where the public uh, tolerance is, is just fundamentally different for uh, a death caused by a human versus a death caused by a machine. Um, and so I, I, don't, I don't have any good answers to that, but I, I just think it's going to take uh, a long time for, for us as a society uh, to, to get comfortable with, with the trade-offs. Um, but, but the key caveat there is, you know, cities and, and states can, can change the rules of the game by closing down roads to human drivers. Right, so if, if we had infrastructure that was only uh, open to 
uh, autonomous vehicles and there is no interaction with human drivers, autonomous vehicles are safe today. Uh, it's, it's the interaction with, with pedestrians and the interaction with other human drivers that introduces all the safety perception risk and actual risk. Um, and so I, I, I think uh, I don't want to make predictions because, you know, cities and states could, could actually solve a lot of this with, with different infrastructure rules. Um, and, and that could accelerate a lot of these timelines. Alex, I feel like you deserve a Alex, response. You must have something. No, I'm agnostic here. Although I have to say, um, I think Tortoise is really cool. And coming into it, I was like, mm. <laughs> so, so clear, I have a, clear I have a use case, clear use case for Tortoise. Clear, um, clear. I, I have a, just one last question about sort of the micro mobility space more broadly. Like, right. So, so I think Travis Manders and of bird sort of famously said that like 2020 is the year of unit economics. Um, and of course, you know, there's been some, some chuckles in some corners about sort of, you know, whether scale before unit economics is sort of putting the cart before the horse. But, but I guess my question to you is because you are clearly must be talking to a lot of these companies um, and you are in the business of solving uh, their unit economic problems. Um, do you see a sense of, of, uh, urgency, uh, around, uh, you know, from these operators to, to solve these problems? Like, is that, is that fire really lit under them or is this kind of a rhetorical thing that they're kind of saying for their invest? Like, like how, how much pressure are they really under to solve these problems? And, um, yeah. And, and like, what does that translate into, you know, your experience, you know, in, in, in discussion, you know, discussing these, these challenges with them? So, so I'd say more broadly, it's, it's not specific to micromobility. I think in general, the entire tech sector is in the post-WeWork era where, you know, top-line growth as being the, the key barometer of health is just no longer an acceptable answer. So I, saying, I think, you know, uh, even before WeWork, there, there was a, you know, a push towards, uh, you know, economics and micromobility. Now it's a full-on stampede. Uh, towards uh, towards getting to profitable unit economics, um, and uh, you know, I think I think Lime pulling out of several lower density markets uh, is indicative of actually operators are being responsible. They're playing the long game. Uh, they're not just chasing top line growth, uh, but they're focused on the markets where where they think they can get to profitability. Um, we we you know when we first conceived of Tortoise, we we really. Um, we were excited about servicing big cities, but what I was personally very excited about, we were talking about before the show, I grew up in Bellevue, Washington, is how you make shared micromobility a, a thing in suburbs. Because if, if you can't get the math to work in high density locations where, where you know, you're getting eight to 10 rentals a day in a market like DC, uh, and even that isn't profitable in the city of Bellevue, with with kind of the current static repositioning model, uh, you're getting maybe one to two rentals a day, um, and so the the ability to get sufficient utilization in suburbs because you're dynamically repositioning scooters is uh, is, is something we're really excited about, and we you know we want to be helping grow the TAM for shared micromobility. Uh, I think operators are going to be focusing on the the bigger markets because that's where utilization is possible today, the higher utilization. Um, but, but I think, um, you know, I think everybody saw what happened with WeWork and, and is adjusting accordingly. All right. Well, we need to let you go. Um, so, but, uh, thank you so much for, uh, you know, giving us the time, uh, to discuss this just 
really fascinating area. Um, if people do want to uh, either follow you or, or learn more about Tortoise, like where online can they go? Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm at Dimitri, D-M-I-T-R-Y 140. Follow Tortoise uh, at Tortoise HQ. Um, you know, we're, we follow the, uh, the, the protocol there. Just uh, every SaaS business is their name HQ on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we'd love to chat with anybody. Great. Thanks so much. Did either of you look through Dimitri's LinkedIn before this? Because I like to look through people, our guests LinkedIn while they chat. You like to social stalk them is what you're saying? Well, I can't. I Alex Roy move. I'm just <laughs> connecting some dots here. I see that you're a board observer of Cargo. Yes. And then if you go to the bottom of your profile, it says here that your thesis in anthropology at Columbia was on the executive leadership of the CIA. Now, was that the Culinary Institute of America or the Central <laughs> Intelligence Agency? It was it was the Central Intelligence Agency, but Very it was uh, it was a very different era. Um, that was uh, <laughs> the was that? Uh, era. so that was uh, that was two thousand seven. All right, we can come back to that um, afterwards. Please proceed, Edward. 